This is a Federal News Network podcast. Diversity and equity in the federal government, that's been a top-shelf priority for the Biden administration. A 2021 executive order created a Chief Diversity Officers Executive Council led by the Office of Personnel Management. Now, a lot of planning, two council meetings, and a DEIA summit later, the diversity leaders are at work on long-term changes. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got the latest from the Chief Chief Diversity Officer, Janice Underwood. What we call the DEIA initiative team is really an interagency effort, and it includes a lot of the folks who are listed in Executive Order 14035. And so I I just want to provide the disclaimer that while you are talking with me, this really is a huge whole of government approach. I'm honored to serve as the government-wide chief diversity officer which is a brand new sort of development since my time here with the launching of the U.S. Chief Diversity Officers Executive Council, which is one of those milestones that we are so incredibly proud about. In addition to launching the U.S. Chief Diversity Officers Council, we've also helped to support agencies in developing and submitting their DEIA strategic plans, and many of our agencies have made their plans public. What's so exciting about that is that the DEIA initiative created a government-wide strategic plan for DEIA, which included a DEIA assessment, a maturity model, and really helped agencies sort of use a template to say, this is how you start the process. This is where you begin, and this is how you track your progress. What's so exciting for me is that when I joined the administration in May, uh, we supported those agencies in their rollout, but in the same time, we also launch what's called the DEIA FEVs, which has emerged as a priority measure government-wide for those DEIA plans. A lot of exciting things happening. And Drew, I can't not mention our first ever national DEIA summit, which highlighted accessibility and best practices in disability employment. I mean, we're on a roll. I'm glad that you mentioned the DEIA index and FEVs because that's something that I've been looking at as well. This is the first time that this index has been part of FEVs. Can you tell me, was there anything that stood out to you from the results in this first year of it? Well, we are excited that we have the baseline. And so the DEIA FEVs items represents a cohort of questions that are meant to really assess federal employees' perceptions of the D, the E, the I, and the A. We are using that baseline to say, okay, here's our line in the sand. This is what the federal workforce is telling us. And now we need to grow from there. Now it's time to show progress. And what are we going to do to make sure that we let our federal workforce know we've heard them, they've been heard in in, in their DEI plans, their action plans to, to address and move forward and make progress. The one thing that truly sticks out to me is that based upon the questions, we're doing pretty okay, especially given this national conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and accessibility, um, and sort of the continuum of understanding. What we also know is that we have a lot of work to do as well. The results, while we're doing well in just terms of a government-wide baseline, we know that there is variability across agencies, and everyone's experience is different. And so what we need to do is give 
the federal workforce what they need to be successful and to thrive. And so when we do that, the American people win. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about agencies' strategic plans for DEIA as well. DEIA, it's a really broad concept. So can you give me a sense of maybe some examples of what's going on at a couple different agencies or how they're really trying to target or measure success or improvements in some of these areas? The best way for me to answer that is to to really shout out some amazing chief diversity officers. So for example, we know that the U.S. State Department has Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley and the State Department's DEIA plan is made public. The USAID, Nena Diallo, their plan has been made public and they're doing things that are advancing this work. So for example, making sure that we think about DEIA as a separate lane to HR and EEO is really important. And some of our plans that are out there that think about this work from a whole of agency approach. What that means is in order to create the plan, you needed a whole of agency approach to make sure you had diverse voices from every single community because DEIA includes all of us. It's not just one group. It's not just just those who are underserved. It's all of us, right? So in an agency, you start with creating assessments and creating the strategic plan where everyone gets to have a voice and a seat at the table. And what you emerge with is a document that helps to guide progress um, from, like I said, a whole of agency approach that looks at this work beyond just a recruitment, for example, mentality. It really looks at, for example, outreach. How are we doing community engagement? How are we making sure that we are serving the needs of those who really need support, for example, in our mission and vision? So thinking about this beyond just a complaint process or quantitative like numbers of complaints or recruitment numbers, that's not what this is about. This is about making sure that we foster community engagement, a sense of belonging, making sure that people have access to, let's say, accommodations that they need to to ensure that they can do their job with efficiency. You've launched this Chief Diversity Officers Executive Council, which I know has had two meetings so far. Walk me through a little bit of the work or some of the conversations that you guys have had so far and maybe some of the work that you have planned coming up. So the U.S. Chief Diversity Officers Executive Council launched September 29th. And at the inaugural meeting where we held it at the White House, we were so pleased to be greeted by OPM Director Karen Ahuja, OMB Deputy Director Jason Miller, and EEOC Chair Charlotte Burroughs, and myself serving as the government-wide Chief Diversity Officer. Together, we make up the, the leadership team of the council, and we were joined by Chief Diversity Officers from 24 CFO Act agencies, as well as the other equities in EO 14035. And at that initial meeting, we really wanted to learn what is it that the community needs and how we plan to do our work. And so we launched the charter at that initial meeting and really dug into what the roles and responsibilities and expectations are. How are we going to meet our strategic objectives and proposed working groups? 
from that first meeting, what was so exciting is that we, in preparation for our second meeting, which as you know, happened December 15th, we rolled up our sleeves and got to work. And we began to dig deeper into the proposed working groups. We convened working groups. And at the second meeting, we started making the magic happen. So it's so exciting to share that um, we have a functional website, a place where chief diversity officers and anyone who wants to to really think about joining our work and looking at us as an exemplar can go to this website to learn more about the charter, learn more about the leadership and how we are joining forces, for example, with our sister organization, the Chico Council, another OPM-led council, but how we're doing this in collaboration government-wide. So we also launched in the second meeting our logo, which was exciting, our website. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the nuts and bolts of how we're taking the president's priorities and really weaving them into the work. Uh, We shared best examples and highlighted examples from the DEIA summit and talked about a centralized ASL function, right, for agencies, highlighted the work that's happening at GSA, for example, Deputy Administrator Katie Kale and Senior DEIA Advisor Andrea O'Neill spoke about the work that GSA is doing and shared how they did it so that we can begin to help other chief diversity officers have a centralized ASL component in their agencies. So it's really about taking those best practices and sharing them in this interagency forum so that we can begin to drive progress. In the second meeting, we also heard from members from the Domestic Policy Council on alternatives to reentry from the Alternatives to Reentry Council, and just hearing what the president's priorities are for, for that initiative and learning about what are the best practices with and the work that's happening with the formerly incarcerated. So Again, rolling up our sleeves and getting to work to learn and become aware what are the tools out there that we can come together and drive progress. You mentioned that you have some new working groups within the council. Can you tell me what some of those groups are focused on? And, you know, I know they're they're brand new, but is there anything that is going to be first priorities for them? So we have four working groups, and each of the working groups are diverse in nature. They have emerged with various leadership and and sort of membership across government. The four working groups are really about, I will say they're in infancy, so I don't want to over-promise and under-deliver here, but they really are about just sort of setting the stage for all of the logistics for the council, such as standards for our website and um, branding and making sure that we have um, records management on board and doing all the things that we know that councils need just in terms of being good government partners. But then we also have working groups that are thinking about how to build partnerships and community engagement, as well as providing input on future DEIA summits. The Chief Diversity Officers Council is really meant to provide my office with input on what they'd like to focus on, for example. As I mentioned, the DEIA Summit, the first annual um, or first ever DEIA Summit is going to be now annual for OPM. It was a great success. And while we 
focused on accessibility. We have a working group that is thinking about all of the future annual DEI summits and how we'd like to engage. But then also we have that same, you know, group thinking about other engagements. For example, my office is really thinking about national engagements like ERG engagements and how to bring affinity groups together, how to drive this work from a national DEIA perspective. So there's a lot of work to be done and we're just sort of building the bones right now, but so incredibly excited about the work ahead. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the DEIA summit that was just a couple of weeks ago. You know, it was the first one of its kind. And as you said, it focused a lot on accessibility. What were you hoping that agencies or agency leaders who attended the summit would get out of it? And what are you hoping they'll kind of move forward with from what they learned in the summit? Well, a couple of things come to mind immediately, Drew. My major, major priority was to bring people together in government that were both DEIA leaders and non-DEIA leaders. So this DEIA summit was really meant for all of us. So you didn't have to be a DEIA leader to attend. In fact, we really wanted this to be a large um, gathering that included people like communications directors, procurement specialists, frontline supervisors, chief financial officers, like people who, as we think about the whole of government, everyone should have a DEIA lens and perspective because if, because if we don't, we will relegate this work to being something that people over there do. But instead, this really is about organizational effectiveness and how we um, solve problems and innovate in real time and ideate to solve our 21st century problems. We wanted to make sure that chief information officers, as well as ambassadors, foreign, foreign affairs folks, everyone was welcome here. And so it was really about the first priority was bringing everyone together to learn because we all have something to learn. Even if we think we quote unquote know it all, we all have something to learn. And the field is changing. Technology is changing. The second priority of the the summit and what we really got out of it was to ensure that the federal government was learning from industry leaders. So we had top leaders across sectors teaching and learning and sharing knowledge, best and promising practices with our federal government, because we know we wanted to bring the best and the brightest, the most talented folks to talk about their lived experiences, as well as, you know, how to do this work with both a business imperative, a national security imperative, and truly thinking about how to serve the American people. Building a better workforce for the American people is our ultimate goal. And this DEI summit was step one to to how we can do that. The third thing I'll just say is this summit was about not only sharing those best practices, those lived experiences and like how we do this work and innovating and, and networking and making sure we build this community. It was also about like the roadmap for now what? We now know these best practices We are now convening. So, for example, it was so important that after the summit that the second Chief Diversity Officers Council uh, did a part two, right? We took those best practices and said, okay, Chief Diversity Officers, this is how specifically you can put into practice these best and promising practices and providing you the tools for which to do so. So the part two, maybe part 
two or three will be how to convene people. For example, we have a DEIA um, learning community that has grown because of this conference, and we are bringing them together on a monthly basis to say, not only chief diversity officers, but the entire DEIA learning community. Drew, we had nearly 3,800 people register for the conference. That's incredible. That lets us know that people were really interested. That being said, monthly, we are now following up to say, okay, what do you need? How can we be a support? How do we put into play? How do we dig a little deeper? We got the surface, but now let's dig a little deeper into the details and the weeds of the how. You talked a little bit earlier about, for example, with GSA, they kind of took the charge on including more sign language interpreters in their meetings. American Sign Language, yeah. Yeah. Is that something that, you know, other agencies are maybe now looking to incorporate? And are there any other examples of types of initiatives that would improve accessibility that agencies might start to look at now? Absolutely. And so we have other agencies who have and could have highlighted their Um, centralized ASL functionalities, for example, the EEOC. But now that we are using those models of excellence, we're asking those agencies, and there's a handful that already have that functionality. Now, let's help these other agencies that perhaps don't have that, that are seeking or are interested in, let's partner together and almost create a mentor mentee relationship. Let me show you how we did it. Let me hold your hand along the way. These are the lessons learned. These are the mistakes we made. So don't make these or you might want to consider these particular situations or circumstances because when we did it, this is, you know, these were the benefits. This was the, this was the cost. This was, you know, the, a promising practice so that we can help other people kind of get to that finish line. So absolutely, we, we know that there are a handful of agencies that already have that functionality. So now it's about GSA helping another particular agency of similar size or, or different size do the exact same thing. I guess something that I've just heard every time I talk about these DEIA initiatives in the federal government is just that it takes a long time to get this work going and it's going to take years and and it's going to be something that would take ongoing work. One thing that you mentioned at the summit was that basically you want DEIA to be baked into a cake rather than as the frosting. Can you explain maybe some examples of how that would look? Like what would be the difference between something that's baked in versus something that is the frosting on top of the cake, so to speak? We know that cake is made up of individual ingredients. And so when you mix those ingredients together and bake it into the, you know, put it into the oven and it bakes, when you emerge that cake from the oven or pull that cake out of the oven, you can't then separate those individual ingredients out. The only thing you can do is add icing or scrape off the icing that you don't want. And we don't want DEIA work or initiatives to be like icing on cake. So if we don't like this, we can take this off. We want all of the DEIA initiatives to be just blended in to the body of the cake. And what that actually looks like, for example, is DEIA in an institution or an organization having a a budget. It's really baked into the budgeting and the work of the institution or the organization. That we look at this again beyond an HR function and a recruitment function or an EEO function and really look at this work from a whole of agency or whole of institution 
perspective, right? So that, for example, might look like ensuring that every department has some form or some dotted line to the DEIA department, right? How, you know, in terms of budgeting, if the CFO doesn't have a DEIA lens, then perhaps they may not be as open to thinking about how to solve problems from a DEIA lens, right? So really thinking about that CFO having baked into the cake of the work that the CFO does, having that um, functionality in the department of CFO, as opposed to just allowing DEIA leaders to do this work. So you really do need thought leadership from a DEIA perspective. So I suggest we have a perhaps a little bit of icing, but you know, we really do want it baked into everything that we do across an agency and not just relying on one person, but this is a team effort, which is how I started this conversation, really identifying that the White House executive order on DEIA is not just being led by Janice Underwood. It's really a team, an interagency team effort um, that's going to take all of us. And can I also just share, Drew, that this work includes all of us. DEIA includes all of us. Every person in the federal government, from the top to the bottom, from the left to the right, and back again, it includes all of us. You've had two meetings with your executive council. Any plans coming up for the third one and anything that's going to be on the agenda for that? We will be convening mid-March. The topics for this are really being driven by the chief diversity officers. So I don't have a lot of information on the topics because what we do, this is not about a sit and get. This is about how do we move the work forward and what do the chief diversity officers need? And so sending out surveys to our chief diversity officers has really been the prime way how we learn what they need from us meeting with chief diversity officers and other senior DEIA leaders in focus groups and one-on-one meetings. That's how we're doing it. So for example, I'd love to shout out Stephanie LaRue, the chief diversity officer of the intelligence community across the entire intelligence community is on the council and really meeting with her to support the intelligence community, which by the way, isn't actually under EO 14035, but because we know it's a best practice to collaborate and work together, that's exactly what we're doing. So having meetings with her and her team to really think about this from a government-wide perspective, collaboration is the key. Would also love to shout out Dr. Cisha Moon of the U.S. House of Representatives Office of Diversity and Inclusion, another incredible DEIA Avenger, if you will, working with her to support her work and however I can be a support. Because if this work is going to be government-wide, we have to get out of our silos and we have to really think about um, sharing promising practices. And that's exactly what we're doing. Federal Chief Diversity Officer Janice Underwood speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, 
Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they are they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and you know uh Terrell who who works in in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries uh if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in but Terrell comes by always happy always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, 
I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams uh, bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.